And basically over the next 72 hours, I slowly lost my vision. Nobody knew why. That's where I had to accept I was going to live a new normal and the rules of engagement of life had to change. Hello and welcome to the Courage To Be podcast, where we explore how to raise your game, lean into discomfort and have more impact and purpose. I am your host, Sinead Millard. Hello everyone, welcome back to this week's conversation. It is with Vanessa Potter and this is an incredibly eye-opening story. Vanessa shares that in 2012 her life was ticking along just fine in her words. It wasn't perfect but she had a successful career in broadcasting in London, a loving family and had decided to take some time out to set up a new business and hang out with her children. Unfortunately, fate had other plans and a mystery illness hit Vanessa and left her blind and paralysed. So today, Vanessa takes us back to that moment in time. She brings us into that experience and in particular her recovery and how that transformed her life. Her approach, which I think you'll see her approach to her recovery was anything but usual. She started to ask questions. She started to document her entire recovery an approach that took her um, to various different places, one being a collaboration with Cambridge neuroscientists, which we hear about today. Also two books, a TEDx talk. And it's a good opportunity for anyone who might be curious about meditation or ways into meditation. And, and just generally, I think you'll see that Vanessa talks about very practical ways to seek that elusive balance and make our lives flow a little smoother. So I'll hand you over to my conversation with Vanessa. Vanessa, it is so lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I, I met you when I say I met you. Uh, we had our first conversation a few weeks ago and I think we ended up speaking for a full hour. And afterwards I said to my husband, I think we should have actually recorded that because I got so much from it and it was so incredibly enjoyable. So it's great to have you back. And this time, of course, to share our conversation with listeners. And if I may, let's dive right in and go back a little in time. So back to 2012. Can you maybe paint a picture of what life was like for you at that time, personally and professionally? Yeah, so 2012, I was a pretty stressed out TV producer working in the London advertising industry. I had two very small children, they were aged two and four, and I was doing that impossible juggle, trying to you know, fulfill my career, which I was doing pretty well in, but also put some time into the family and I was getting fed up of collecting sleeping babies and you know, taking them home in their pajamas. So I'd managed to wrangle a really good deal. I'd got uh, a job where I was freelancing, but I was also managing to take the summer off that's the whole idea of being freelance, you take time off. So I was I was just coming through the other side and getting, you know, getting life where I wanted it to be. And of course, fate did that fabulous thing that fate does and goes, no, I got to change all of that. So that was the setup. And my daughter had just started school. She was joining reception. And in September, I had a really horrendous bug, like a like flu, but not. And it knocked me out for two and a half weeks. I was really quite poorly. And I was just coming through the other side of that. And then, yeah, just tragedy hit. And it all started on a Monday morning. 
I woke up feeling strange, a bit woozy. Weirdly, I knew there was something really serious wrong, but in, in that kind of intuitive way. But then, of course, you kind of override that. And I did go to the doctor and the doctor just kind of thought, stressed out mum, busy job. And I did spend a day at hospital. They did a million tests and they couldn't find a thing wrong with me. And that evening I went home and I remember doing a kind of a going to bed and just going, go away, whatever this is, just, just, just go. Unfortunately, it didn't. The next morning when I woke up, I realized quite kind of objectively that I'd lost about 70% of my vision. And this was frightening, but at the same time, I was intensely practical. I think that's partly the producer skills kicked in, partly being a parent. And so I packed a bag and we rushed back to hospital. And basically over the next 72 hours, I slowly lost my vision. And what happened is my vision went into like a halo and that halo got smaller and smaller and darker and darker until eventually it was a pinprick and then the pinprick went. At the same time, and this was quite a lot to fathom and to take in because it was just happening so fast. And so my brain was kind of almost not processing this because at the same time, my body was being taken over by paralysis as well. So this started in my fingertips. They started feeling just numb and a bit strange. And then that spread up my fingers. And actually, I think I kind of tried to avoid this because it actually happened in my feet as well. And we didn't know until I tried to stand up when I was being examined by one of the many, many doctors that we saw. And I couldn't. And that was very shocking. And that's when I sat down and my husband, Ed, went, you're really ill. Mm. And I think that's where it just dawned on me. And then it was like, well, how ill? What's happening? And nobody could tell us. And one of the things that was was kind of quite frightening, aside from the fact I was blind and paralyzed, was nobody knew why. Nobody had any answers. And I got a sense of this kind of quiet, suppressed panic around me that here they've got a young mother. I was in my, you know, just turned 40 and nobody knew what to do. And so that was a very destabilizing, very horrible, horrible time. And thankfully my vision did hit rock bottom, but then started to return. And that took a long, long time. Initially, all I saw, well, actually, I try not to use the word see because you don't, you, you've, my vision didn't just switch back on. Mm. You, you, you don't just suddenly open your eyes and bingo, it's all there. I started to sense a shift. So I started to sh sense light and I had what I would describe as a gray swirling fog and that was it. So rather than black, it was gray. And then over time, there would start to be movement and flickers and I might get a line somewhere. So I was seeing in black and white, two-dimensionally, I had no stereo vision. So I couldn't see faces. I didn't know the hospital room I was in. I couldn't see myself, which is very disorientating. And I had lots of strange experiences with feeling like I was a deep sea diver under the ocean because two of my major senses were locked that's been knocked out. So all the data that we imbue as human beings that tells us where we are, what we're doing, you know, it orientates us in space and time. I didn't have those cues anymore. So I literally didn't know where I was. It was a very 
discombobulating, I think is a good word for it. Wow, yeah. So that was, yeah, that's kind of the, the main thing that happened. And then, of course, um, there's the whole recovery part of that as well that came afterwards. Yeah. And, and I think like, first up, I mean, that's what, what an incredible story. And I think the recovery, I'm, I'm also having had a brief conversation with you uh, kind of in my head. It's almost like, how did you engage in the recovery? Because that's what I, I feel. I get this sense. I'd love you to bring to light and paint a picture for audience of what that recovery looked like. And perhaps that can range from, am I right in saying you were 16 days in hospital and then from there going home? Yeah, I was actually in hospital for a remarkably short time, if you think what had happened to me. Yeah, the recovery is where kind of my story kicks in, really, because that's where I had to start living and being aware of myself in a different way. I had to adapt. While I was in hospital, I started using my mind and my breath in a very conscious way. I wasn't actually aware of it at the time. It was so innate and so intuitive. I was kind of doing it unconsciously, but I was visualizing inside my mind. Now, these were skills that I had in my, if you like, in my mental toolbox for many years earlier. Well, not that many years, actually. I'd used hypnobirthing for one of them um, with my son. And I'd had a great experience and, and, and had, had an amazing birth experience. And so I knew how to put myself into a hypnotic state. I knew I could change how I felt about a situation. And I'd also learned visualization skills, um, imagining yourself walking through. The classic is a lovely field full of daisies or a beach. And, and I decided to go to the beach. And so I spent a lot of my time, probably 80% of my day, in a very deep meditative state, lying in my bed, breathing my way onto this incredibly nurturing and healing imaginary beach. Now, you might think that that's just a bit woo-woo and crazy. And actually, if you told me at the time or a few weeks before that I would be doing this, I would have rolled my eyes at you. But I'm I did. Almost, I'm almost thinking of that, though, as you explain and paint this picture that that feels like an anchor, something that you could potentially control in the midst of so much uncertainty and fear. Absolutely. It, it was empowering because if you think nobody knew what was wrong with me, it took them two weeks to get any kind of diagnosis. And at the meantime, they're testing me for brain tumors, multiple sclerosis. It's frightening. So this was something that I could do for myself that didn't require anybody else. And it had benefits. It was powerful. So because my body, my nervous system had gone into, you know, hyperdrive, I was shaking, my body shook, and that's a classic kind of trauma response. And I could control, using my breath in particular, I could control my body shaking. I could reduce it. And in some cases, I actually stopped it. And so that's really powerful. And I did that just by using my breath and my mind. And that was probably the first step I took on this new intuitive relationship with my body where actually my body, whilst it was also the assailant because I had an autoimmune illness, so this is where the body's own defense system, you know, attacks the body. At the same time, my body was proving to be its own healer. So there was something rather kind of strangely nice about that. Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting when you mention that. I'm also thinking of, you mentioned the word trauma and 
you know, sometimes the perhaps there can be an inclination to want to leave the body in trauma um, because or turn away from it. But it sounds like it was quite the opposite for you. Actually, I did a combination of, of the two things. So there was absolutely an element of leaving my physical body. So that was the visualization that took me to another place. Now, that was a place where I could gather my wits, if you like. I could calm myself down and I was employing my senses. And the, one of the reasons I also visualized the beach and I kind of extended this to very much feeling where I was. So I would imagine the sun warming my skin. I would imagine a bird flying past. I would put my toes into the sand and wiggle and get that lovely, cool feeling you get underneath hot sand. And I would imagine all of that and lots and lots of bright colors. Because one of the things I was very aware of was atrophy. So my body, you know, very quickly was beginning to atrophy. And so I was constantly trying to move and stimulate my feet And I was trying to stimulate my visual system as well. Now, again, I couldn't have told you that's what I was doing. I couldn't have had, you know, a sensible conversation, but I absolutely knew I was saving my sight by practicing seeing. And of course, I didn't understand then that we see with the brain and not the eyes. When I explained all of this to scientists afterwards, they went, well, of course, you know, this absolutely kept your vision alive. So there there was a sense of leaving and departing so I could So I could have a a reprieve from the horror and the trauma. And it meant that when I returned to my body, I could cope a bit more. There was a sense of visualization in terms of that stimulus of the visual senses. And then there was a hypnosis, which was the changing my beliefs, rewiring the fear and changing the fear actually into curiosity. That's where the curiosity started. I thought my only way to get through this is to be curious. And where did the curiosity take you next? So I'm hearing that this visualization was a big part of the journey um, and your active involvement in recovery from what I can hear. Uh, where, where does it lead to from here? So the curiosity, I think, comes from being a TV producer. We, you know, problem solve, we're interested. And the curiosity, I had no idea where it would take me. In the, it took me on an enormous journey. One of the things I did is... I insisted that my family kept a diary while I was in the hospital. And this was recording all, everything, every kind of detail from who came in, what their names were, what conversations we had, everything. Because I kind of knew that I was going to be using all of this information. And as soon as I came out from hospital and I started um, recovering at home, I was doing lots of experiments because this curiosity I just knew was my drive. And so the experiments were testing how much my vision could come back because one of the most frustrating things is it was easy to measure my physical improvement. So I I lost the ability to, to, to walk. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't hold a knife and fork. As my mobility started to return, I could hold a fork. Well, that's measurable. You know, I could walk three steps. Yesterday it was one. The next day it was five steps. So that's measurable. Vision isn't measurable. And so this was very frustrating for me, and particularly as a TV producer and someone who is visually orientated. So the curiosity was like this motivation to understand and to also log the changes. And when that meant when I I could register changes, so for example, I started looking at a shower gel bottle in our shower. 
I didn't realize I was a scientist at this time, but I this, this is a very scientific thing to do. Yeah. I put it in one place and I looked at it every single morning and I logged and I had a little dictaphone that I was using to record because I couldn't see anything. I couldn't write in notebooks. I was legally blind for four months and I would dictate the changes. So today I can see the left-hand side, I can see a curve and I think there's a dark blob at the bottom. Five days later, I'd realized I get very excited. The, the dark blob is a label. I can see there's a section of a label. Two weeks later, there's white lettering on the label. And this is where, how it went. And I did this for six months. So you're recording this. You're recording this yes. audio and saving each day down, right? Yes. Amazing. And I'm, I'm recording not just the experiments, but also how I felt, how much I walked. So I'm recording the whole recovery journey because I knew somebody somewhere was going to be really interested in this. If I was, someone else would be. And eventually I went to Cambridge University and pretty much knocked on the door there and went, look, I've had this incredible experience. Um, it's a year on. Can I talk to you about it? Because I really think there's something that I've learned a lot from this. But I think you could learn, you know, other vision scientists who want to talk to me. And thankfully, I did meet the right people. I met um, Dr. Tristan Beckenstein, who studies consciousness and he was very interested in my story and in particular how I'd used my mind to overcome the trauma and, and manage the trauma and manage how I felt. And so we got talking and I'd come up with a few ideas, which I thought was completely normal. Like, and I was a TV producer, you know, you, you conceptualize, you have this experience. I turn the experience into a massive neuroscience exhibition, a 26 page document that um, I'd written, I have to say, in about 16-point type because I still couldn't see very much. And I gave him this and he raised his eyebrows and went, you do realise that most patients don't come into my office, into my lab <laughs> with a neuroscience exhibition concept, whereas I thought that that was completely normal. Anyway, it, it wasn't. But it did mean that I could explore that curiosity a lot further. And in fact, we did. We worked together for the next several years on a number of different projects, which was very, very exciting. Yeah, and I'd love to go into that a little bit more. And maybe just, I think maybe the mom, the mother in me is a little bit curious, which we haven't touched on. I was listening to the Shortcuts, uh, that series you did on BBC. I, um, it, was, it was beautiful. I'll share the link in the show notes. And I'd just like, if I may, just just read something um, that you said, which which was really beautiful. I can't see, but I am still being their mum and I think this just for me brought me back to that real day-to-day -day of what it is you were moving through and maybe we could just talk to that for a moment in terms of your children and you as their mother and how that was for you as you moved through this recovery. Yeah that was very powerful that's that's where I had to accept I was going to live a new normal and the rules of engagement of life had to change. And my children became my teachers. This was an extraordinary shift. And there was a lot of trust that had to go. And I had to let go of a lot of control. And also my definition of what a parent was had to change. It wasn't about being a successful TV producer and earning money and running around. It was actually about allowing them to help me help myself. And so this shift happened by things like, we had a lot of physical and tactile contact mm. because I literally couldn't see. So my children became my eyes and they 
they learned how to help me help myself. So this would be things like I would be feeding my little son um, apple crumble and he would make it difficult, you know, and it wasn't to be awkward. It was to test me, you know, he'd move around. So I had to see where he was. There were little sods. They used to steal my walking stick and they'd stand at the other side of the room and they'd tap it. So I had to hear where they were and they'd giggle and I'd hear the pitter patter of feet running around. And my, so my recovery had to become part of our lives. We just had to embrace it. And I remember my mother telling the children, you've got to tidy up your toys. You can't leave them on the floor. Mummy will trip over. Well, they didn't. Nobody tidied up the floor. <laughs> and so I had to learn to navigate those toys. And so, so we all had to adapt and learn this new way of living. And there was another thing I used to do with my daughter. She's blonde and was very, very, they're both my children are blonde. And so they don't have very dark eyebrows. Mm. And we'd have this game where every every day she'd come home from school and she'd jump on my lap and she'd put her face right up against mine. And she'd go, can you see them? And we'd have this game where I would squint really hard and try and see her eyebrows. <laughs> and so the children became a measure of my vision, but they also became a measure of the levels of compassion that we had to have in the house. And I think they learned an awful lot about people and about how we treat people and what kindness actually looks like. Because I see that now as they've grown older and they're both of them have a very intuitive and empathetic understanding of other people and their situations. Mm, that's incredible. And and your husband, I'm assuming, I know you've, you've mentioned him previously in other conversations, he was a big part or at least alongside you in this recovery. Yeah. I mean, Ed was by my side literally the whole time. One of the things that I was extraordinarily lucky is whilst the doctors did scratch their heads for quite a, quite a long time, the care I got was amazing. And they let us, they broke all the rules for me because I was this, they called me the mystery patient. <laughs> and Ed was pretty much with me in the hospital 24 hours. You know, he never left. I, I, I think I was alone one time in the hospital for 10 minutes by myself. But they brought in this squishy chair, like an old airline chair, and all my family and Ed slept on that chair every single night. And, and that made a big difference because I could touch people, so I could physically hold his hand. And even those moments where I was a deep sea diver and I didn't know up or down or where I was, I still knew I had a contact. I had the touch of another human being. And I think it made us very grateful for that very human thing of contact, of touch. I learned, well, I learned a lot of things, but that was one of the very important things. And yes, Ed was around. He walked with me every single day. Um, he became my eyes, but all my family did. And also we had to have humor. We, we used humor a huge amount in the family. You know, we had to find the funny in these situations. So there was a lot of laughter as well. There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of terrible times as well and a lot of torment. My memories now, when I look back, is just of how we were as a unit. We all we all helped each other, actually. Mm. And how you were as a unit, and I think I, I'm interested. There's so much here, and I want to get onto the Cambridge piece as well. But I guess if you look at where you are today, so that was 2012, or now 2021, in terms of how you are as a unit, or perhaps your own individual or family values, um, did they did they evolve? And I guess have they remained? Um, Di di or different if they have changed? Yes, I think they have. 
um, I think it's hard to have an experience like this and not have it change you. Mm-hmm. And my children were different ages, as I said. My son was a lot younger, so he's got a lot less memory from it. But my daughter remembers it all. And I think in some respects that's had, I think there's been some negatives from that. You know, she's she needs me a lot. We're very, very close. And I sometimes look and think, gosh, do you need me as much as it's because of you thought you were going to lose me. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes wonder about that. Um, but that, you know, they're coming, well, she's a teenager, she's 13. My son's nearly 11. So they're just normal kids. I mean, they're, they're not perfect. None of us are perfect, but we're not aiming for perfect. My main thing is as long as they still talk to me. And I think talking was the one thing I had, the communication. And yeah. so, and, and also they've kind of followed my exploration so a lot of the investigations I did to understand the kind of inner mechanics of my mind, my brain and my visual system, they followed with that and they love that. And at my children's school, I was called the brain mummy for a while because I was coming in and running projects with them. And they like that. They love that I wrote a book. Um, mm. They love that I've written a second book, but particularly they love that I told my story through a book. And and it's made them very, I suppose, quite proud of me, which is which is lovely for me to feel. Um and they and they have been influenced. Um, both of them love to have their own style of meditative practices, and that's something that we've developed as a family. And that probably wouldn't have happened if my experience hadn't happened. Yeah, and I want to get on to that actually and delve into some of your insights on that. But if we, I pulled you away a little bit there from Cambridge University because I had that urge to ask that question. But if we can go back to that mm-hmm. point in time, did you become an experiment? <laughs> what happens? Yeah, I was both the guinea pig, if you like, um, and I was also the researcher. And that's kind of this tandem role I've played. So the just to backtrack and explain what that whole collaboration with Cambridge was about, I wanted to show the world, the public, my beach. But as I explained to the scientists, I didn't want them to just, I don't want to show you a picture of a beach and go, I imagine that. That's not what this was about. I wanted them to come inside my mind. And I wanted to show them what my brain activity looked like while I was visiting and thinking and imagining my beach. That was far more powerful. And that, as consciousness researchers, was what interested them. So we used a technology called EEG, which some people will be familiar with. It's where you have little electrodes attached to your scalp. And if you've ever had any time in hospital, chances are you might have had one of these tests. And this is where it records the and measures the live brain activity that your brain is emitting. And this can be very informative. It's used as a diagnostic tool for things like epilepsy, uh, amongst other things. But it can also be used to record um, the visual centers. And so I had this in the hospital. And this is where I got the idea from. I thought, well, if you can record if my visual centers are firing and if they're alive, can you can you actually record if I'm thinking, if I'm imagining a beach? And so that was my question. And the answer was yes. And this is meditation. So the exhibition that we came up with hinged on my story. And what we did is we invited members of the public to come into an exhibition room where we hooked them up to EEG headsets and we recorded their live brain activity while they meditated. So to do this, we did a baseline and that's where we just asked them to close their eyes and think, make up shopping lists, imagine what conversation you're having when you go home, that kind of thing. 
And then we gave them a guided five-minute mindfulness track and they followed those instructions for five minutes. Afterwards, they came out of their little darkened room and we... I'm really shortcutting a very big experience here. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> a load of graphic design and video students. And we converted those mindful brainwaves into music and moving art, into visual animations. And so we got to show people what their brain looked like while they were meditating. This was extraordinary because most people came in going, well, I can't meditate. I, I don't know how to do it. You know, my brain won't, my brain won't do this. So that a lot of people were negative about it or curious. Um, and then we would show them these two screens, one with their brain thinking about shopping lists and the other one where they're meditating and they were really different. Mm. And that was incredible. We had 120 people come through the exhibition. It was launched at the Cambridge Science Festival in 2015. They queued down the road to come in. We had to extend by several days. And our biggest problem was getting people to go, to leave. They wouldn't leave. <laughs> but it was extraordinary. And people were saying things like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea I could control how I felt. I can control my state of mind. You've just shown me. And this idea of having tangible evidence, someone described it as seeing their own soul. I mean, it was very profound. And we had a psychologist who was on site who went and talked to people afterwards and did interviews because people needed to talk about it. It really was like touching this part of your own psyche that you never have access to. And yeah, it was enlightening for a lot of people and very exciting to be part of. Yeah. And you said excited that they could control their mind. So I guess for the audience listening who are perhaps uh, jumping up and down to find out what that looks like. Uh, what what does it mean? Can we control our mind? How do we do that? What does it look like? What are the benefits? So it starts with self-awareness. And for a lot of people, self-awareness was the big kind of like wow moment for them, which is just sounds crazy, but I've got a brain. <laughs> you know, we go to the gym, we exercise at the gym to get ourselves fit. Uh, we go to a swimming pool, you know, to do cardiovascular fitness, but we don't look after our brain. We don't pay attention to what's going on, the contents inside our mind and how that is impacting our thoughts and our behaviors and how we feel. And this idea of being able to be, first of all, just be aware. A lot of people had never been aware of the barrage of thoughts that were just flitting through their mind at any time. A lot of people had never sat still by themselves, with themselves for five minutes in the middle of the day. Even those exercises, just doing that was monumental because <laughs> they used to come out of having done the exercise and they were all a bit, they, they went in giggling and laughing a bit nervous, you know, having this thing stuck on their head. It was a bit strange. And they came out the other side looking utterly calm and relaxed and centered in a lot of cases. So, so that for them was just massive data. I can sit quietly for five minutes and I don't even think I was meditating. A lot of them said, but of course they were. And, well, that, they, that's I, and I have this effect. Yeah. I don't think I was meditating. I just like that for a moment, if we, if you could elaborate yeah. on that, because I think that's something that like, I've heard quite a lot or people say, oh, that I'm, I'm just, I just sat down for 10 minutes. That was terrible. I'm a terrible meditator. Yeah. 
and this is it can be a huge problem and a real block to, um, to 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 starting a practice is this idea of some weird expectation that somebody somewhere <laughs> has given you, which is some of the myths are that you clear your mind and that you can be good or bad at meditating, both of which are very wrong. You don't clear your mind. All you're doing is be aware, being aware that you have thoughts. And if you just sit quietly for five minutes aware that you are thinking, bingo. That is meditating. If you are alive and you have a brain, you can meditate. And there is no good or bad. And so these are really important myths to dispel straight away. Now, there are lots and lots of different practices where if you do become more conditioned and you become more habitual and you take on a practice, you can become more adept in the way that if you go to the gym and exercise, you kind of get better at the exercising. Mm. But there is no rule that says that, you know, you can't exercise. It's exactly the same with meditation. You'll become more adept at the practices and you'll start to notice the differences between practices. And so for some of them, yes, there are some practices where you do try and um, intercept some of your thinking. But but for an entry point, no, you just sit close your eyes or not even close your eyes and a lot of it is the intention it's if you intend to give yourself a break from yourself for a few minutes even for one minute that is meditating I think we've got to lower the bar and and broaden out what meditation is meditating is walking (laughs) it's a lot of things that people don't think it is can you maybe elaborate on the walking meditation Vanessa Yeah, I I actually think a walking meditation is a really great inroad because the idea of going inside the head can feel very stressful for a lot of people. And also focusing on the breath, which is a common practice of mindfulness, can actually be really tricky to do. Our attention doesn't like the ego, that, you know, chattery part of our mind doesn't really like to focus for very, for nanoseconds maybe, but not longer. So that can be tricky. Whereas I always think with meditation, rather than try to shoehorn something brand new or new, learn something new, adapt something you're already doing. I think this is a good logic in life. Mm. So if you're, you're walking, you will walk around. You can walk mindfully. And there are lots of different types of mindful, mindful walking practices. But the general idea is that you are consciously, with intention, putting one foot so slowly down after the other. And the idea is to feel. So as you put your foot down, you will feel all the sensations. And I can guarantee if you've never done a walking meditation, you can actually just start with a standing meditation, which is just to stand and lower your attention through your body to your feet. And you'll go, oh, my feet feel quite hot. Quite often your feet, your feet feel hot but you don't know it. We're disconnected. We're just these heads walking around. But this way of grounding and anchoring yourself back into your body is very powerful. And just acknowledging, oh, my feet feel, actually, they feel a bit sweaty, a bit, "Mm, not sure about that. Or they might feel cold. You might go, I've got quite cold toes. That is meditating because you are Mm. focusing your attention intentionally on your body. And that's a really calming exercise. It also gives you this a way, a way of, of settling yourself in time and space. So you become aware of your surroundings. By doing these practices, you expand rather con- than contracting in life. 
contracting, making things smaller and tighter, you open up and make things bigger and larger. And if you think of it in terms of that, I think that can be quite helpful as to what a meditation practice is and what it's bringing into your life. Yeah, and I think on that, without being too, like part of me, the question in my head is, what are some of the outcomes um, that one could get from meditation? And I know there's never one answer to this, right? But for listeners, I mean, you mentioned calm and centered um, when you spoke about non-meditators and some of the benefit that they experienced afterwards. Have have you any other anecdotes or uh, stories to share as it relates to some of the outcomes? So the outcomes were the reason why I wrote my second book and I gave myself a tick list to go and explore after the Cambridge exhibition and I, my curiosity did not die away. It got fired up because I, and, th- and this is kind of where I'm coming to with answering your question, there are lots of different ways you can interact and train your mind and training your mind is what meditation is. And so it, you know, you kind of really need to be honest with yourself about what it is you're looking for, what you want. Now, what you want when you start off very is very likely to change. But if you feel disconnected from your family, if you feel a bit numb, this, this is something I think that's coming up quite a lot post-pandemic, the isolation, the loneliness that people feel. We don't feel like, we kind of feel like we'd we can't see people's faces. We've got that. And that's very human. You know, we've lost this connection. There is a very specific practice you can do that's called loving kindness. And there's, this is kind of under the umbrella term of compassion practices. And this is something you can do that will actively target that. It will, And it's quite a hard practice to do because it means walking through discomfort of feeling disconnected and how much you've actually shut off the world. And it means connecting to those loving parts of ourselves. And we, we start with ourselves in a loving kindness practice. And that can be extraordinarily challenging. So, so in terms of outcomes, you really need to ask yourself, what do I want? If you're very stressed at work, um, if, you've, you know, if you've got a lot of uh, worries, then there are some very simple body scan you know, techniques you can use that are just really, really quick and easy ways to just ground the body and they have an, a very calming effect. But there are plenty of meditations that actually require quite a lot of effort. And so they are less calming. So depending on your outcome, you can kind of prescribe and pick a different practice. So it's, it's as wide as it is long. You know, it could be that you want to improve sleep. Um, it could be that you just want to have self-awareness. You know, maybe you find yourself with the same habitual patterns of life things keep happening you know then an mbct course is a really good prescription for that because it combines the cognitive understanding of the thought processes and patterns of behavior alongside mindfulness practices and this is what i explored so you know i explored 10 different ways to train my mind to see what each one gave me and you could pretty much pick any problem in your life and there will be some way you could use or adapt a practice to help you with that Mm, absolutely and I think maybe just speaking from personal experience as well I think for me that the starting point was just creating more space and moments of solitude and be that moments be that sometimes a little bit longer five minutes ten minutes sometimes two minutes and then almost seeing what that process did for me 
uh, as opposed to necessarily knowing what I needed from it. And then I think on reflection, kind of seeing what I did need from it. But it was almost like just an engagement with it. And and there was obviously something within me that was calling for that solitude and that space um, to actually begin to explore it. But yeah, that's just to share something that may or may not resonate. Um, oh, totally. And, and you know what? I don't think we can be hard on ourselves. If, if you don't know why you want to pursue a meditation practice, but you've got an urge or there's a there's something that has come onto your horizon, you've suddenly become open to it. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You've just got to walk through the door and practice and try it because there will be something you learn. And I think one of the things with a, any meditation practice is we've got this assumption that you just sit quietly for five minutes by yourself. Whereas actually the practice is about your life. It's about making your life easier and better and making you the better version the best version of yourself that you can be and I think we sometimes forget that these practices are meant to bleed out into your life and affect and ripple into you know the people that you know and so I think looking at it in isolation is sometimes part of the problem I I wish that we in the west had a much more collective view of meditation in eastern practices they have something called the sangha this is a buddhist term where you have this community, this support network around you. And it's one thing I think we get very wrong in this country and in the West in particular. We we do it in isolation, whereas actually meditation can be difficult because of the, and you just touched upon that, the insights that start to come. And they are often, they can be curveballs. They can be things you didn't expect. And it would help, it helps enormously to be able to talk about that with other people. And that fleshes out the practice, fleshes out the things that are coming up for you and also helps you realize that this is also incredibly normal and that not to judge your experience. Your experience is your experience. But if you do that by yourself on the sofa, that's hard doing that on your, by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we come to a close, Vanessa, I'd love to hear just a quick um, summary of this book and when it's launching. So the book is called Finding My Right Mind, uh, One Woman's Experiment to Put Meditation to the Test. It feels Ooh, like quite a long title, nice. but, that, but that's kind of what I did yeah. um, on the back of the exhibition. Um, it came on the back of a lady asking me a question and she came out of the exhibition. And she said, well, that was mindfulness. OK, but what about all these other ways you can meditate? And I knew nothing about meditation really back then. And I didn't like that. So I went away and researched. And then I went and pitched an experimental idea to the scientist again. And I said, I want to go and spend a couple of years. It was supposed to be 18 months, actually. It was three years in the end. Um, with an EEG headset on my head. And I want to try 10 different types of meditation. And they went, fantastic. And so we designed a study around that. And it's a PhD project, which is just coming to a close at the moment. Not for me, for um, uh, a researcher called Barbara Jacks. And it's just been the most extraordinary experience. And the book chronicles that. So the book is basically a gateway to all the different ways you can train your mind from MBCT, so mindfulness, to the compassion work I've mentioned, to Zen, Kundalini yoga, uh, Vipassana, which is a silent retreat, through to psychedelics, which was the last chapter, which is a pretty big chapter. And And so it's very much... I'm not teaching you how to meditate per se. There are lots of great books on how to meditate. This book is what happened when I tried. And it's hopefully relatable in that it's warts and all. It's all the places I fell on my face, got it wrong, 
and all the all the insights that I learned about myself from doing this. Brilliant, Vanessa. And just very quickly, when is the book available to order? It comes out on April the 29th. It is available already now to pre-order from any good local bookshop. I would always send someone to a local bookshop, but if you can buy on Amazon, of course. Wonderful, Vanessa. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that has resonated with you, or perhaps you think it could benefit someone else, then please do share this link or start the conversation. If you haven't done so already, click on the subscribe button in your listening app. And as always, I really value your feedback. So please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And for more information, full show notes, links and resources, you can pop over to my website, SineadMillard.com. See you next time back here on The Courage To Be.